Welcome to Encounter. We want nothing more than to help you find and follow Jesus. If you're a college student in Central Illinois, join us Monday nights, ISU's campus. We'd love to see you there. All right, my friends. Tonight, um, as we dive in, I want to start in a really strange place. So first of all, just to double check your theology tonight, uh, the best way to spread Christmas cheer? No, you guys. It's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. We've been talking about this for months. Okay, um, I'm gonna st- I am going to start in a weird place tonight. 2016 was a really weird year on campus for this reason. Uh, if, if during that fall you came on to the, the quad at ISU, you would have encountered a phenomenon that was quite unlike anything that had ever been seen before. Um, and of course, what I'm talking about is Pokemon Go, okay? <laughs> I don't know what stage of life that you were in at that point. I mean, I'm a bit of a nerd, so I don't mind. Like, I was playing it with my boys. But to go onto a place like campus, I was shocked at just how mainstream Pokemon Go had become. It was, it was something. Standing, I just, like vivid memories of standing out beside the College of Business and there'd be just migrating mobs of people all over the quad and somebody would be like, there's a squirtle over here. And like a mass of people, hundreds would take off running that direction to catch it. And somebody else would yell something else at somewhere else. And everybody, and I was like, this is, I couldn't believe how mainstream Pokemon had become for like, I mean, it didn't last crazy long, but it, it lasted. All right. And campus was a crazy thing. Well, then in 2018, another game came along that actually didn't gain traction very quickly. Nobody knew about it until I think a couple of YouTubers started playing it in 2020. And then it took over like crazy. Any guesses? Oh my goodness, my friends. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And another game comes along that just, I mean, immediately grabs a kind of mainstream attention. It, even, it changed our language. Sus was not a word pre this game. It wasn't. But, I mean, you have to be able to type purple sus, you know, like that just to understand what is suspicious. So if you, if you never got into the game, let me briefly sum it up for you. There's a bunch of different crewmates in space. And within the crewmates, there is a, an imposter, right? And the imposter's job is to to kill, <laughs> to kill all the other people. And so if in the beginning you're a crewmate, all you're trying to do is to figure out who kills people. And if you can get rid of that person, and, and I, you guys, this is not normally the, the sermon trail that I would chase, okay? But as I'm studying this week for tonight, this is just the goofy, uh, like, brain, I don't know, the, the highways I was traveling down at the time. Because John 1.14, which we'll be in tonight, talks about how the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That is the verse, okay? And so as I'm looking at that passage and I'm thinking about that, I'm thinking, what's so funny to me to, to, to marry that to Christmas, I know, it's a stretch, is the imposter's job is to do two things if he's playing this game. Uh, it's to kill he wants, to, he wants to kill as many other crewmates as he can. And it is to remain anonymous. He doesn't want anybody else. It's his job to convince everybody else that he's just like everybody else. And so it was interesting to me as I'm thinking about John writing this idea of the word, Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. I'm like, Jesus was the imposter, 
But he's the worst imposter ever because he flipped it on its head. And, and from his perspective, it's like all he was doing his entire ministry career was trying to convince everybody that he was the imposter. He was like, I am, I am the one who was sent from heaven. He's constantly telling everybody else about it. And his motive, again, completely flipped on his head. His motive, what is his motive? Is it to kill and destroy? No, it's to give life. It's, he came to seek and to save that which was lost. And so it was absolutely hilarious to me thinking about John writing this and the way that Among Us took over in 2020. I mean, we had the pandemic, but also there was Among Us. So we had that going on too. So I want to dive into, do a deep dive tonight into John 1, 1. It's not or John 1, 1 through like 16, maybe. And this isn't traditionally a Christmas passage, um, but, but it really is. It's a beautiful Christmas passage that, that John gives to us. And before I do that, though, I need to dive a little bit into, I'm going to turn tonight into a little bit of a history philosophy lesson before we go there, all right? So you probably somewhere in your like studies, education, studied Greek mythology, somewhere along the line. And so all these different Greek gods and goddesses that the Greeks believed in, you familiar with them? You know, you have Zeus and you've got Poseidon and you've got Aphrodite and you've got Mars and Hermes and all these, all these others. And the Romans had, you know, very, pretty similar but different names for them. You guys study that still? That's still a thing, right? In like freshman English in high school? Okay. So I need you to understand those first came to, uh, came to our knowledge. I mean, like, let me look at my notes here. Um, I want to say it was like the 8th century BC. So like 800 years before Jesus was born, we have the Iliad, the Odyssey. Those are the first tastes that we have of Greek mythology. And so these are, these things are being practiced. These stories are being practiced in the Greek world for seven or 800 years before Jesus comes on the scene. I just want, I want you to understand a little bit of his culture tonight that he walked into. And here's what I mean. People would offer sacrifices. Fishermen would offer sacrifices to Poseidon to catch more fish. That's the way that their world worked. If you, if you ever look at the, the book of First uh, and Second Corinthians, that was written to the church of Corinth. In the church of Corinth, during Jesus's time, there was a temple to Aphrodite, who was the goddess of sex, uh, where, where 1,200 temple prostitutes worked just in that city, that one city in Corinth. Right? People were practicing. You'd go to Aphrodite's temple and have sex. That's what you would do at that church. Okay. And so the Greeks, the Greek gods and goddesses, people were still practicing those, those concepts and ideas when Jesus walked the earth. But here's the other crazy thing. Three or 400 years before Jesus, um, then we have Greek philosophy, what we call the golden age, actually, of philosophy. Plato, Socrates, Aristotle, even if you've never studied them, you've heard them. And they had a very different view of the world. I mean, the, those three didn't have the same views of the world, but they started thinking differently about it. So Plato and Socrates, for example, they started studying the natural world and saying, what can we understand from what we see? And it, if you've ever studied idealism or realism, which comes from them, sorry to get a little, a little bit nerdy on the front end tonight, but they believed, uh, if, if you've ever read, anybody, Plato's Allegory of the Cave, Anybody? Come on, I got, okay, like four hands in the room, okay? It used to be in English classes that you, you would read that. But Plato's allegory of the cave was all about this. He believed that from the natural world, that he didn't call it God, but he said that, that we must be designed. He believed that, as he looked out in the natural world, he said it's reasonable to believe that there is a mind that is greater than ours that created us. That's reasonable to believe. Again, he didn't call it God. He called it the immovable mover, 
He called it the absolute mind. And so then he started believing, well, if there is an absolute mind, if there is a mind that's greater than ours, then the process of discovering truth and beauty and purpose and meaning is the process of enlightenment, where we should understand what that absolute mind thinks, what, whatever that creative thing is. And so he wrote all of this, these ideas of enlightenment. You've, you've heard that. Education was really important to him. See, what's crazy is you don't know it, but the educational systems in the United States now are founded on those ideas. We still follow this in our, in our systems. So there were all these ideas. I'll, I'll get to my point, okay? There were all these ideas that Plato and Socrates together, that, that these themes that they toyed with. Light and darkness was one. Light has to do with, with enlightenment, of us coming to greater and greater knowledge until we begin to reach understanding. That's what education, like that process of education. But one of the big words that was very important in Greek philosophy and culture was this one, lagos. Lagos was, was basically that, the picture of that absolute mind. It was reason or discourse or truth. And so there is that idea that lagos is out there. We can, we can maybe, if we study our whole lives, begin to understand the great lagos, this great, almost unknowable truth. But education will take us there. So that's what Plato and Socrates especially really dove toward that understanding of philosophical idealism. Now, so we have a weird mix of Greek culture because you have some people practicing mythology, I mean, all of these different gods and goddesses, and those gods were weird you guys, Zeus was coming down and like raping people and going back. I mean, it's like the gods were messed up and they did whatever they want, whenever they wanted. And some of them were sympathetic to humans, but mostly not. All you really wanted as a Greek, if you believed in that, was to be left alone. You're like, I hope the gods are busy with their own stuff because I don't want them messing with me. And you offered sacrifices to try to keep them out of your life. But then suddenly in this too, we have Plato and Socrates starting to talk about this, this new thing of, of enlightenment, and what does it mean that we think that there could be an absolute mind, and we actually do want to know him? Can we know that? It wasn't even a him, it was just an it. Could we ever uncover the great Lagos? Why in the world are we talking about all of this stuff? Well, because Lagos is a word that shows up a lot in the Bible. Actually, all of those themes I just talked about, light and darkness and life, and Lagos. Lagos is used, that word is used 330 times in the New Testament in 318 different verses. This was an important idea in Greek times. And the gospel writers, you know, each of them, uh, if you aren't familiar with the Bible very much, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those are the first four books in the New Testament, they just tell the story of Jesus's life. They're just eyewitness accounts to Jesus's life. They just wrote all the stuff down that he said and he did. And they did it just after Jesus, like, you know, Jesus lived, had his ministry, died, was resurrected, was gone. And then in the following decades, people were like, we should preserve these stories. So the people who were the eyewitnesses, we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Either they went and collected these stories from the eyewitnesses or they were the eyewitnesses themselves. John, for crying out loud, was with God, was with Jesus. So he's telling this firsthand. But each, I don't know if you've noticed this, if you look, each of the, the gospel writers start their stories very differently. I mean, Matthew starts with this giant genealogy. 
like a list of Jesus's family tree. He's very interested in you knowing exactly where Jesus came from. He wants you to know that this isn't just a made up story. He's like, I'm going to go through every parent that's existed for the last 35 generations so that you understand Jesus's family tree. That's the way Matthew starts the story. Mark barely doesn't even really touch the Christmas story at all. I mean, Mark is the shortest gospel. He's right to the point. He basically starts with John the Baptist. Luke, Dr. Luke, he's a doctor, very precise. He lays out perhaps the most of the Christmas story that anybody has, which is why Luke 2 is what you normally hear quoted. That's, that's what Linus, Linus quotes Luke 2 in Charlie Brown, if you watch the Charlie Brown Christmas special. We get a lot of our Christmas story from Luke. But John doesn't do any of that. John gets philosophical. John doesn't start with Christmas. He doesn't start with John the Baptist. John starts with the creation from the beginning of time and walks his way forward. And here's what John wants to start with. In the beginning was the word. You want to take a wild guess as to what word he uses there? Lagos. In the beginning was the Lagos. And in the moment that he wrote that, the Greeks would have been like, I beg your pardon? Like, what are we talking about now? In the beginning was the word, the Lagos, and the Lagos was with God, and the Lagos was God. Okay, John, what are we talking about? He was in the beginning with God. Catch that little shift? Now suddenly, Lagos isn't just a thing, it's a person. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. You hear all those key words that John's hitting on? He's trying to help these Greeks understand exactly who Jesus was. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. Now here he's not talking about himself. This is John the Apostle who wrote this. He's talking about John the Baptist who came before Jesus. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. The true light which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. He's talking about the Jewish people that he was sent to. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word, the lagos, became flesh, and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. You guys, so much packed into this verse right here. The Word became flesh. The great Lagos became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. You guys, to a Jewish person understanding the Old Testament where God, I mean, God wanted to be close, but there was just this sense of holiness and distance and I am not like God. You're familiar that the, uh, we have actually lost the actual spelling of Yahweh's name. You familiar with this? Because the Jewish people wouldn't, it was too, he was too holy to write the vowels in his name. So we've lost, we lost that spelling because they wouldn't even write it out of reverence or holiness. 
So, I mean, this is the God we worship. We worship, you know, the God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. But there is this sense of holiness and other to a Jewish person to would be like, I, I do believe that there's a God. I believe that he's good, but I also don't believe that I should be anywhere near him. There, there is that sense of I can make my sacrifices. You see in Greek mythology, this idea of like, I believe that Zeus exists. Man, I hope he's, <laughs> I would really rather live my life without him ever intervening. You see this idea in Greek philosophy of, yeah, there is the Lagos. But man, that's like this impersonal force that I guess we should try to get to know, but we will never quite attain it. And John grabs all three of those people, all three of those different parties that were present in the culture of this time. And he's like, no, no, no. The Logos became flesh and lived with us. We call it incarnation. The incarnate God present with us. This is groundbreaking. Absolutely groundbreaking. And you know what's cool is it's groundbreaking for you. It's groundbreaking for me because in this culture, it's not really all that much different. You want to talk about God as an impersonal force? Yeah, I believe in karma. I believe like, you know, there's this general spiritual force of you get what's coming to you. Nobody blinks at that. You say that in class and everybody's going to be like, yeah, me too. Me too. Even creation. You know, you say, you, you see something and you say, man, Wow, the intricacy in that is unbelievable. It's difficult for me to believe that there isn't some sort of an intelligent designer. That's not offensive in our culture. Like, there are some pockets of people that will mock you for believing that some sort of a God could create us. That's true. But in general, culturally, agnosticism, which is, you know, I guess a God sort of could exist, but how could we ever know that? Nobody's looking down their nose weirdly at you. But the moment that you start talking about incarnation, the moment that you start using the word Jesus, the moment that you start saying, I believe that the word actually maybe did become flesh and live among us. I believe that God became a human. I believe that he was born of a baby. I believe that his mom was actually a virgin. Then people are like, what? Dude, what are you talking about? That's crazy talk. This is crazy talk. The word became flesh. The impersonal became personal. The unknowable became knowable. We're not just talking about finding a path to God. We're talking about a God who like built the path to you, who came to you and me. You're like, man, I wish God would show up in my life. The word became flesh and lived with us. I've said it before, but really good. It sounds weird, but really good theology. God 3D printed himself in front of us. That's exactly what happened here in John 1.14. The word became flesh. God was like, here I am. I have arms. I have legs. I have feet. I have emotions. Look at how I live. Jesus was human. He's fully God and fully man. So he ate food and he had body odor. Like he lived the life that we lived. The impersonal made personal. You guys, it's groundbreaking. A God who's not locked in an ivory tower. This quote, which came out of the fourth century, man's maker was made man, that he, ruler of the stars, might nurse at his mother's breast, that the bread might hunger, the fountain thirst, the light sleep, the way be tired on its journey that truth might be accused of false witnesses, the teacher be beaten with whips, the foundation be suspended on wood, that strength might grow weak, that the healer might be wounded, that life might die. 
groundbreaking. Absolutely groundbreaking. The idea of incarnation, of Jesus becoming human, moves us from the logos, which is just this impersonal force that could be guiding us somehow, to Emmanuel. What's Emmanuel mean? God with us, which was one of Jesus' names. Let's see if I put the scripture down here. I think I did. Yeah, Luke 2. Um, While they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them at the inn. And that is the fulfillment of Isaiah when he predicts a time to come in Isaiah 7. Listen to this. All right, then, the Lord himself will give you the sign. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. So, yes, this Jewish idea of in Genesis 3, 8, that that God walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. Absolutely. Exodus 3, 7 and 8. God says, I've seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I'm aware of their suffering. I have come down to rescue them. You hear that language? God was always with us, even in Revelation in the end. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them. I mean, you guys, that's all the way through scripture, Genesis through Revelation, that God is knowable and he is with us. But there's something so different about John 1:14 when he's like, no, 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 with you as in with you, human like you, suffering alongside you. Tempted by everything you have ever been tempted by, we're told in Hebrews. Tempted in every way. Think about that for a moment. Think about the temptations that you wouldn't say aloud in this room. Jesus was tempted by those. Every way, just like you and I are. That's the way the word came flesh, became flesh and dwelt among us. So you say, okay, Ben, I'm not going to fight you on that. What in the world do I do with that information? What do I do with this? Well, I'm here to tell you tonight, okay? Because incarnation, um, and I I would love it if you fall in love with that word. I have. It's become life-giving to me. Incarnation. The idea that God would manifest himself on this planet in person. That he would show up in that way. It changes everything. And the the first is this. There are two very simple things I have for you tonight, and then I'm going to get off the stage. Incarnation allows us to respond to God. Incarnation allows us to respond to God. That's him building a path to you. That's him saying, I want to be close to you. And then that drops the ball in your lap to say, hey, do you want to return the favor or no? Do you want to be close to God? He wants to be close to you. Sounds painfully simple, you guys, but drink it deep. He wants to be close to you. So incarnation allows you to return the favor. In my relationship with my wife, it's not good enough if just one of us wants to be close. It's not good enough for one of us to show up on date night, okay, to be like, well, I put in my time on date night. I sat at Chili's by myself. That's not the way it works. No, a relationship involves two people who both want to be together, spend time together. And so God has shown that interest in you. And so my question is, how, how do you want to respond to him? I'm hoping to give you some time tonight to process on that a little bit. 
I'm hoping that you can take this sermon like nine steps deeper in a way that I can't do from the stage, because that sounds super and wonderful and generic, right? To be like, God wants to spend time with you. Will you spend time with him? No, I'm asking you, will you? I have ideas for you. The next six weeks, I think, could be life-changing for you if you, took, if you started and ended your day with the Lord. Sounds easy, right? Ten minutes in the morning, ten minutes in the evening. What does it mean to say, God, I will clear a path for you? Well, what are the barriers to that? You say, I don't know. I mean, I, I could do that, I guess. What are the barriers to that? I, we have an unbelievable barrier to that now. As I was processing through this, that question of, of what are our barriers, uh, Mark Sayers talks, in the history of the world, they've always talked about um, money, uh, what are the three? Money, uh, sex, and power as the three largest vices. In other words, you know, people who are in, in positions of power, those are the things that corrupt them, typically. Those are the stories that you see of downfall. All right? It's interesting to hear Mark Sayers say, I think we are reaching a new age where distraction might fall on that list. It's like, what? What do you mean distraction? And he's talking about people who absolutely waste their lives on, I mean, that, we have those original vices where somebody is just willing to tank their life because of lust or because of money. And he's saying, I think distraction might be on that list. Are you guys aware? I mean, this is kind of a soapbox for me, so I'll, I'll keep it short. But are you guys aware? Out comes the stool. Um, are you aware that the people who make the apps and stuff for you that sit inside of this, they're monetized by your time? You get that? So you're scrolling TikTok, and you're scrolling past ads without even thinking about it. That's making somebody money somewhere. And so there, there are actual positions, I don't know if you're aware of this, in social media companies called attention engineers. That's somebody's job title. It's on their business card. Do you know what their job is? To take more of your time tomorrow than they took today. Seriously. Their job is to find algorithms. They're paying attention not just to what you sit and watch, but how fast you scroll by stuff. And the faster you scroll by, then it's memorizing it, it's understanding that you're not interested in that content, and it's farming you more content tomorrow than they did today. There, there isn't a conscience that sits behind that. They're paid to get more of your attention tomorrow. than the, So there are teams of psychologists sitting around trying to help the company figure out how to help you sleep less tomorrow and watch TikTok more or to be on Snapchat more or to surf whatever, to reels or stories. Or, I, I don't even know what the terms are, okay? I kind of backed away from social media a couple years ago. But, but with this, I want you to understand this. Attention might be one of the greatest barriers to what it means to go deeper with the Lord. Mary Oliver has a great quote. I don't think I can say it any better than she said it. Attention is the beginning of devotion. It's going to be very hard for you to be in a fulfilling relationship, friendship, dating relationship, anything with someone that you won't pay attention to, right? That's, that is the first gate that you have to walk through on this. So I know because I hear it from you that many of you are like, I want to go deeper with the Lord. I just don't know how. This is the front door. What does it mean to pay attention? And again, to go back to incarnation, he's already walked the steps to your door. Behold, I stand at the door and knock, Jesus says. Will you open the door? That's what attention is. So again, part of our first response to the Lord that I'm just giving you a very tangible response over the next six weeks. I mean, we're, we'll see each other at Christmas communion next week, but we won't be back in Capon together until like 
forever. Okay, so I'm asking you for the next six weeks, what does it mean to open the door to the Lord? And I'd love if you could grab your phone, that thing I told you not to be distracted by. I would love it if you could hit this QR code. I spent some time today um, mapping out some decent devotional options for you for your morning, just free stuff that's online. There's all kinds of stuff you can buy, and I'm sure there's stuff in your Bible app and elsewhere. But there are four mornings, you, or there are four resources you can choose on there to do something in your morning, 10 or 15 minutes. The first one that's on the list is built to be a time of scripture and prayer and reflection that changes every day that you can just cycle through. What I put together on the evening for you, I'll move out of the way in case my head is keeping the QR code from working. I see you front row. Um, The bottom of what I put on there for you is a seven-minute process of prayer called the prayer of examine that I think would be a beautiful end-of-the-night rhythm for you. And so again, I'm asking you, would you be willing? Incarnation beckons you to meet God in that space and say, God, I want to come after you. I want to know you. I want to understand you more deeply. And if you are not willing, and if I am not willing to put this thing down long enough to give God's voice a chance in my ear, you guys, then that's as far as your relationship with Christ is going to go. And you're going to come back to me six weeks from now, and you're going to be like, I still feel shallow. And it's like, I I don't know what to tell you. God has taken all of the steps except one. And you just need to meet him in that space. There are other, like this, you guys, I'm just, this is just scratching the surface. People around you who are following Jesus, you should ask them, what do your rhythms look like? What brings life to you? Find out the ways that they pray. Create spaces in your own life that you look forward to, that you look forward to being in and saying, you know what, if I go there to that spot, if I sit in my car at at that lake, even if it's 10 degrees outside and I read my Bible there, then that will bring life to me. Put it on your calendar. Let's create life-giving rhythms where we meet God in those spaces. So that's the first piece, okay? The first piece is that the incarnation allows us to respond to God. And if you're paying attention, this might start to ring a bell because that's one of the paths to loving the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. So incarnation pulls us to the greatest commandment. What does it mean to love God in return? Coming full circle this semester. And the second one is this. The second one is that incarnation is the picture of how we minister to others. Did you hear what uh, John said here about John the Baptist? There was a man sent from God whose name was John the Baptist. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. So John says, no, John the Baptist wasn't the light, but Jesus will go on to say that you and I are lights. We aren't the light, but we are lights. Matthew 5, Sermon on the Mount. You are the light of the world. He's talking to his disciples, and he's talking to the listeners around him, and he's talking to us. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. How do people see Jesus in this lifetime? Through you. And how do they see him through you, specifically? Through your good works. Through your good works. They may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, don't, I don't want you to mess that up. God doesn't change the way that he feels about you based on your works. You messed up today. God loves you. 
You wear the righteousness of Jesus. He sees you through that. His grace is full that way. You don't have to live in guilt. You don't have to live in shame. But I can tell you this. If we are going to live godly lives, that is what people are going to see through us. That we are a city on a hill. And I love, too, that this passage, I want you to get the metaphor here that Jesus is saying. You know, this is, that's the passage where he says, hey, you don't light a lamp, like imaginary lamp right here, right? You don't light a lamp and then put it under a, a basket. It's like, no, that would be stupid. You, you just let it be what it is. All you have to do is not cover it up. That's the metaphor here. You don't have to try to be brighter. You don't have to be a lightier light, okay? You don't. When Jesus takes over your life and he begins to change your priorities, all you have to do is not hide that. And other people will trip over it all of the time. You are a beacon, he says, a city on a hill, like a lighthouse. People can see it from a long distance. Just don't hide it, Jesus says. Just don't hide it. I think about that on the college campus examples of living differently. When you don't let your girlfriend spend the night because you're trying to live out a different kind of sexual purity, people ask questions. When you're walking through a hard season and everyone around you is smoking weed to dull the pain and you choose not to, people ask questions. When your friends are trashing on someone that you don't like or a group of people that you don't like and you don't participate, you don't, and you've maybe even voiced that you're uncomfortable with the tone of the conversation, people will notice. When you don't have a lot of money, but you give some of it away anyway, people will notice. When your boss or your parent or your teacher is being unreasonable, but you still treat them with dignity and respect because it's what God has asked you to, the people around you will notice. When you have the opportunity to cheat in a class, but you choose not to, people notice. When someone does not deserve your forgiveness, but you give it anyway because you have an excess because of the way that you have been forgiven in your own life and you have forgiveness to give to someone else, people will notice. When you can cut corners in your work, but you don't because you want to do that work as if you were doing it for God himself, I promise the people in your group project will notice, okay? When you spend time loving people who don't deserve it or don't return that love very well, people will notice. When you show hospitality, people will notice. When you pray and ask God for wisdom on your present and your future, other people will notice. When you carve time out of your life to love God with your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength and love others, people will notice. When you wake up in the morning earlier and sit with a cup of coffee and the word open, your roommates will notice. People around you start to ask questions. That's the way that it works. All Jesus is saying is don't hide it. Let me transform your life and don't hide it. And people will ask questions of you. Why are you living this way? Why are you showing that person forgiveness? Why are you giving that person grace? Uh, when I went to school, to, uh, to college, at East, I went to Eastern Illinois University, and um, there was this one dorm that was way apart from the others. It was the freshman dorm. It was Carmen Hall. Awful. Okay, it was the worst. Um, and it was, it was just known as a huge party dorm, and nobody wanted to live there. And so uh, the moment, it became a freshman dorm because the moment that you could move out of Carmen as a sophomore, you were gone from that spot. It also was the furthest away from classes, so you had to walk through the snow to the rest of campus. Eastern's a pretty small campus anyway. I don't even think Carmen Hall's open anymore. I think they closed it down. But here's this to say. When I would, went to school there, there were these two guys from InterVarsity. And I remember that as seniors, they decided 
that they were, they were living in an apartment off campus and, as juniors, and they said, hey, our senior year, we're going to live on campus again, and we're going to live in Carmen to love on freshmen, just to share the love of Christ with these freshmen who are coming in. And you guys, every person who knew anything about Eastern, the moment that they said, hey, are you a senior this year? Where are you living? Carmen, Why? Why would you possibly? I mean, like, that was the follow-up question every time. You got a free pass out of Carmen. Why would you go back to that? And it would be like, well, because I want to love on the freshmen. They need, to, they need to know the love of Jesus. What better way than to move back into that space? Incarnation. Do you hear that? That's the model that Jesus gave us for how we love others. We enter into their world incarnation. They were living incarnationally in that dorm. I am here for this purpose, to live this out. Where are you living incarnationally? Some of you are going home to hard spaces over Christmas. I know it. Some of you aren't. Some of you are looking forward to it and being like, this is going to be a great break for me. That's awesome. But for some of you, incarnational living will be a big challenge for you over Christmas. What a beautiful thing, though, to go back in and say, God, I am your hands and your feet. Just like you came down to be with me, I can step into the world to live for you. And the people who need to be affected by your love and your grace and your mercy can do that, can see that through you. So the great Lagos that came to to love us and to dwell among us, the impersonal made personal, you, my friends, you and I, are the ones that take an impersonal God that this campus doesn't know. Again, they're cool with karma. They're cool with, I don't know, maybe a larger force. But you are the ones that get to introduce them to a God who lives among us, who dwells with us. Like, that word, dwell, means like he came to set up his tent. He moved in, unpacked his suitcases, came here to be with us. And that's the model for your incarnational living where you go to. So for tonight, as we enter back into worship, I really want to end the semester where we started. That returning God's love is a part of loving him with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. That being the incarnation to others is a part of loving our neighbor. And that in that way, the incarnation of Jesus is all about loving God and loving others. We just come full circle. So what I want to do is I want to ask you just, I'm going to give you about two minutes of quiet before we enter back into worship. And I want you to process these questions. God, what is an easy next step for me to draw closer to you? God, what places in my life have I been resistant to let you change? And God, who around me needs my time in prayer in the next six weeks? And I pray that the incarnation would inspire us in all of these. Thanks for listening. Find out more about Encounter and ways to get involved at isuencounter.org.